Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. And then it's a really, really cool privilege I have to welcome Daniela. Um, You know her, uh, but um, it's a special welcome this morning. I really appreciate Daniela's um, always zest for life. I've never seen her with not a smile and a sparkle in her eye. And I know it's because of Jesus. It's not just because you're great. You are great. But I, it's, I learn from her every time I see her that there is joy that is far exceeding circumstance. So please come and share the word with us. We're super excited to hear from you. If you want that mic, you can have it. Awesome. Anyone still have ladies' night stuck in their head after that introduction? Um, yeah, thanks, Azan. Um, I'll pray for you guys, don't worry, so that you're not distracted by the tune. Um, but yeah, this morning, I'm, I'm super privileged and excited to share with you, and um, hi and good morning to everyone who's dialing in as well. Um, yeah, just for anyone who doesn't know me, I am Daniela. Uh, I actually form part of the Shofar Santon congregation, um, and every so often I do get the opportunity to come and visit visit this church, and it's it's always a joy. And Leanne, I just want to say thank you for reminding us why we're here. <laughs> like, really, I I mean, it's impossible to not just you know be distracted by God when you lead us. So thank you so much. Um, and, I, and it was so cool this morning when we were, we were driving in, I was expecting that with it being a, a long weekend that there might be five people here. So it's already a lot more than I anticipated. But what was so cool to just remember is that God pitches up for the one. Like God doesn't wait for the crowd in order to arrive. He comes if there was even one person here this morning. So we can all really be expectant that he's here to meet with each one of us. And yeah, and I trust that it will be so. So yeah, so this morning, um, the message is nothing new, you will find. Not a brand new revelation, but it's a message that God has been speaking since the beginning of time. And that is a message of his call to continuously um, come to him, to be with him, to know him. Um, Because we know that that's our inheritance as Christians, right? To know God and to be with him. So let's, let's explore that for a moment, actually. So in John 3.16, which is a verse that everyone, even those who are not Christians, seem to know, and it is, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then later Jesus says, This is eternal life, in John 17. That they, he says this in a prayer to God. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we have to take a moment to just see what these um, scriptures are telling us, because on one hand, we're reminded that for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that we might not perish but have eternal life. And then on the other hand, Jesus is saying, this is eternal life, to know me. So we almost have to conclude then that the very thing that Jesus died for was for us to be able to know him. And there is a very sure difference in knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. We know more about Jesus when we read scriptures, when we listen to podcasts and sermons, we discuss him in our small groups. Um, 
But the end is really just our knowledge of we know about who he is and what he did and how he lived. We haven't necessarily drawn any closer to him as a person. And that is the big distinguishing factor in knowing Jesus and knowing about him. And when we know Jesus, we know him as a person. And in knowing him, we're constantly engaging with him in prayer, inwardly in our hearts and outwardly. We're compelled to worship him because we're so convinced by his beauty and his majesty and that there's none other like him. We're convinced by his love for us and it just causes us to rejoice. We are sensitive to the movements and the promptings of the Holy Spirit because we know that the Holy Spirit is leading us to become more like him. We look forward to the next time that we spend time with him, although we know that he's walking with us continuously during the day. So I think the the psalmist um, summarizes it so well, this thing of knowing God, um, in Psalm 27. And he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And how much greater to know God as a person than to just know about him. And I mean, the, it's not just greater because it's a, a better and improved life experience. It's greater because it's the very thing that Jesus died for, for one, to reconcile us to God in this kind of relationship. But for two, when we worship God with our words and um, with our song, yet we remain in the realm of only knowing about him, it's not actually pleasing to God. We're confronted quite a lot in the word about how God often laments over people who, and I'm going to quote, unquote, people who draw near with their mouth and honor him with their lips, while their hearts are far from him and their fear of him is only a commandment taught by men. That's Isaiah 29.13. So just to elaborate on this picture of what it really looks like when we only know about God, um, Spurgeon has this sermon, it's flippin' knocked me off of my chair, um, about taking hold of God. And in the sermon, he, he pins the two against each other, what it is to know God as a person and to just know about him. So um, this is a quote from, the, from his sermon, and he says, There are many whose religion is nothing but a mere outward performance. It consists in attendance upon a place of worship so many times on the Sabbath, the reading of prayers in the family, the repetition of a form of devotion night and morning, and perhaps the mechanical reading of a chapter. But there is no consciousness that God is near, no converse with him, no taking hold upon him. God is far off from them even when they pray. They never dream that they are speaking into his ear. They believe there is a God, but they act as if there were none. He does not influence them. Their lives are not inspired by his presence or ennobled by his smile. Their religion is practically godless and therefore worthless. Their hearts stop short of God himself. It's quite quite hectic. Um, so I think if we had to put that in, a, in, in other words, outwardly proper worship offends God if it's a way of evading him at a deeper level. Let me put that in different words. Outwardly proper worship 
is offensive to God if it is a way of getting around, connecting with him at a deeper level. Almost like we're keeping him pleased with the stuff, all the while we're not drawing nearer to the person. He wants worship to come from our entire being, from our, our hearts, not just from our mind and from our emotions. Um, and there's, this, there's a scripture in Isaiah 64. It's Isaiah 64 verse 7. And it's a scripture I stumbled upon earlier in the year. And, and it's really, yeah, it really stuck with me. And, and it says, There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. There's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. Almost like that there is more than just, you know, knowing about God. There's more than just knowing the scriptures, knowing about who Jesus is. But there is a realness of God that we can enter into so much so that we could take hold of him. And in that same um, message of, of Spurgeon's, he, he says this. He says, the very soul of devotion lies in realizing the divine presence in dealing with God as a real person, in firm confidence in his faithfulness, in a word, in taking hold of him. Men do not take hold of a shadow. They cannot grasp the unsubstantial fabric of a dream. Taking hold implies something real which we grasp. Taking hold implies a reverent familiarity with the Lord. So just that part about taking hold implies something real, which we grasp, implies a reverent familiarity with the Lord. So it's almost to say we can't take hold of something or someone if we don't know them. So let me paint that picture for you. When I was at university in my third year, I met Stefan, who is now my husband. And we'd had one conversation, and I came back to Rez telling everyone that this is my future husband. And I would be lying if I said that I didn't already spend time practicing my new signature, dreaming about what it might be like to be married to Stefan. Um, all the while, I barely knew the guy. I'd had a sing one or two conversations with him. Um, so in that sense, he was not anywhere close enough for me to actually take hold of him. He was really just an idea. I was enjoying the idea of him. Um, and so just the same, oh, well, yeah, let me finish that thought. Um, so only once we started dating and eventually got married, praise God, um, I actually, <laughs> I actually knew what it was to, to know him as Stephen and then to take hold of, to take hold of him. And so the same with God. And so the way that one knows their boyfriend and their girlfriend is still different from the way that one would come to know their husband and wife or wife. Um, and obviously the big, the big glaring difference there is that a husband and wife enjoy an intimacy that only they can in the form of lovemaking. And um, they cannot possibly get closer to one another than they do in that moment, very literally in all sense of the word, taking hold of one another. But what is a very important thing that needs to happen in preparation for this kind of intimacy? They must become uncovered or unclothed, exposing very vulnerable and exposing every form of imperfection. And I believe that if we are, in, are to enter into the intimacy with God where he becomes real enough for us to take hold of him, we prepare for that intimacy in the very same way, in becoming uncovered or unclosed, spiritually speaking, before him. 
We cannot take hold of God in intimacy if we do not become uncovered before him. So what we're going to read from this morning, and I'm just going to pray before we get into it, is Genesis 3, which really shares the story of the first couple to walk on the earth, um, and also the first two people who had the opportunity to enjoy this kind of closeness with God. I'm just going to pray for us, and then we'll continue in. Yeah, Father, we are so grateful, Lord God, to be able to meet with you and gather together, Lord, under your, under your name and under your hand and in your presence, God. And I thank you so much, Father, for just the expectancy that you caused to arise in our hearts this morning in intercession and even individually, Lord, that we would meet with you and come to know you in your presence, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would open up our eyes to see you, our hearts to really know you, God, and to not miss you this morning. I pray that you'd open our ears also to hear what you are speaking, God. And I pray, Father, that you'd speak even more than what I'm able to say physically with my words. I pray that you will translate a message unique and appropriate for each individual sitting in this hall this, this morning and who are listening online. We commit ourselves to you, Father, and we pray that you would have your way, Lord God, this morning. Amen. All right, Genesis 3, verse 7 to 10. And just before I read it, let me just give us a recap of where we find ourselves in Genesis at this time. This is just after Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit after being deceived by the serpent. Okay, so then it starts. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. So it's because of Adam and Eve's willing disobedience that now, ashamed of their nakedness, they hide. And conscious of the Lord's presence, they cover themselves. It was probably actually the other way. Ashamed of their nakedness, they cover themselves. And aware of the Lord's presence, they hide. Um, so when our sin is revealed before a holy God, we have this inherent sense that we need to be covered. And in two senses, because God is perfect and pure and holy. And when our weakness is exposed to him, the shame that we feel is sort of the same as the shame we would feel as if we were someone standing naked in a public space. So our instinct is to want to quickly cover ourselves, or in this case, grab a couple of fig leaves and sew together some loincloths. Um, and then in the other sense, we feel the need to be covered in the sense of looking for safety, wanting to be covered from, from danger. And likewise, when our sin or our weakness is revealed before a holy God, like children, we, we anticipate the punishment for our sins. So again, instinctively, we look for cover and we hide or we hide behind the trees in the garden of the Lord. But let's just ask the very obvious question. How can we hide from an all-knowing, ever-present God? Well, we can't. And Hebrews, Hebrews 4 verse 13 puts it quite explicitly. It says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's quite a, quite a telling scripture. So this part now where God calls out to Adam and asks him, where, where are you? It's one of those that I always used to get confused about as a, as a child reading my, um, my kid's Bible. Like, 
you know that God is God. I mean, he created everything. He sees everything. How could it be possible that he would all of a sudden misplace his creation? Surely he, he has eyes on everything. So we have to consider then that it can't be the case that God literally doesn't know where Adam is. So now we need to think, maybe God is asking, where are you? And asking us, perhaps, where are you? Not because he doesn't know where we are, but because we don't know where we are. He's not confused about where we are, but he's asking the question because he wants us to think about the answer. So I think as we, as we head deeper into the message this morning, let's actually ask ourselves, where are you? So we consider Adam and Eve's hiding from God and all-knowing, ever-present God, something quite foolish, like, oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. Like, <laughs> he's in the garden, he's God, he sees everything, it's the most silly thing. And yet how many of us continuously or often try to hide in similar ways, not maybe literally behind fig trees and, um, and bushes, but we do try to hide from the ever-present, all-knowing God. And, and I think that there's two ways that we could, as Christians, or we do quite typically tend to hide ourselves from the Lord. And the one is that we try to cover ourselves up with avoidance, or we try to cover ourselves up with performance. Both are just as insufficient as fig leaves and trees, yet both forms of cover are very effective in keeping us distant from a deep and intimate relationship with God. So let's unpack the first one, the insufficiency of avoidance. So in some cases, our cover and hide response to God is quite explicit. So again, aware of our weakness, our shame causes us to want to rather avoid time with God altogether than come before him naked and exposed. So what do we do? We put off church for next weekend. We um, commit to praying to God and talking about that really difficult thing, but only after we've done this or that, and then we never end up actually coming before him. Or we just blatantly avoid time with God until we feel like we're ready to come out, which I think is probably something quite similar to what Adam and Eve experienced as well. I think they probably knew the foolishness of them hiding behind fig trees and fig leaves and trees, but it was that shameful sense of, I'm just going to wait until I'm ready, and then I'll come out, um, which is just as silly, actually, if we consider it. And, and I think this place of avoiding God is a really dangerous place to be, because when we avoid him, it gives the enemy the space to be able to accuse God before us. And what I mean by that is it gives him the space to say, do you, do you really think that God is going to forgive you again for that thing? I don't know if I'm really sure that God wants to spend time with you anyway. You know, maybe maybe you should just work on this or that thing, and then you'll be okay to come before him. And don't you find that it's the same? It can be very much the same in our earthly relationships as well. When you have a little bit of a run-in with someone, I don't know if it's just me, um, you have a little bit of a run-in, and you don't see that person maybe for a couple of days. All of a sudden, your mind starts to just disproportionately magnify um, the wrong in the situation. You start thinking, fluff, this person probably thinks I'm the worst person in the world. They probably never want to see me again. They're my best friend, but probably they never want to talk to me again. They're most definitely talking to other people about me. And you start to go on this rampage of how terrible the situation is until you actually meet with that person again and you're like, 
oh, actually, it's not that bad. Oh, they weren't even angry with me. So I think it's very much the same when we distance ourselves from God in, in, in terms of actually avoiding or to the extent of avoiding him. Because it's in that space that the enemy starts to convince us of these untruths about God that cause us to delay coming to him even more. Um, so yeah, one thing to, to think about. And I think avoidance can also come in a more subtle form. So just after covering themselves, we read that Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And this was such a, it's such a contrary idea for me because they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And yet later we, we read that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. So they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, yet in the presence of the Lord. And so I think in the very same way, we can come before God in devotion and in prayer, yet still be in hiding or still hide something from him. We never fully uncover before him. We rather keep it hidden. And I know one way that I do this is through justification. It's normally my alarm bells that go off. So when I have a hint of conviction that I've done something I shouldn't have done or said something that I shouldn't have said, Rather than coming clean before the Lord, I'll stand outside and think, oh, but it wasn't really bad what I said. Or um, I know that person, that person's a radical Christian, and they've definitely said worse things than me before. I think I'm okay. So it's almost like we start to make ourselves look a bit better before we enter into the presence of God um, again. And just as foolish as Adam and Eve, putting on fig leaves, trying to make themselves look more appropriate and look a little bit better before entering into the presence of God. So let those little rings of justification or, you know, let justification um, in that sense send some alarm bells in your head and consider that maybe that thing is not helping you to get any closer to God. Actually, it's just a cover that's keeping you from him. We cannot... We cannot take hold of God in intimacy if we do not become uncovered before him. So in that sense, I think there may be some of us in the room who don't avoid time with God, but we do avoid completely uncovering or completely being vulnerable and exposed before him. And maybe it's not a weakness or a sin that you're keeping hidden from God. Maybe it's a stirring or a desire that you don't really want to talk to him about, or an honest emotion that you feel too ashamed to confess, or a dream that you're sort of letting die, or maybe you just have absolutely no krach to be able to just tell him exactly how you feel. For as long as we keep anything hidden from God, or that we don't confess absolutely everything and anything to him in prayer, we're just keeping ourselves covered and we're keeping ourselves away from that deep and intimate relationship with him. All right, now we can move on to the insufficiency of performance. So I think that performance is another way that we can evade God at a deeper level. And in Genesis 2, it says that the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So Adam was put in the garden with a purpose to produce fruit, to work the ground and produce fruit. Um, he was there to tend the trees, to make sure that they grew, to make sure that the soil was in the right condition so that leaves could flourish and fruit could flourish. And yet those very trees, which are the fruit of Adam's work, are the things that he hides behind. And the very leaves that he helped to produce in the garden are the leaves that he uses to cover himself from God. So just the same, I think we um, 
we can very much do the same. On one hand, perhaps we might keep ourselves busy with doing things for God or um, doing things for the church, yet not actually being intimate with God um, and not actually enjoying intimate relationship with him. And when we do that, essentially we're just covering ourselves up from the Lord. It's just a cover-up, actually. Um, in Matthew 7, it's quite a confronting scripture of the consequences of doing the things, um, yet staying far from, from Jesus himself. Um, Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we're talking about how the fruit of our labor um, and the things that we keep busy with in terms of our activity in the church or as Christians can be the very things that cover us from intimate relationship. But just in the same way, I think our work, our day jobs, can just as well be a covering that keep us from intimacy with God. I was thinking of elaborating on that, but I feel like it can stay there. (laughs) Um, So how many of us, if we have to consider this, are keeping ourselves covered or covering ourselves with the efforts of our performance, all the while avoiding intimate relationship with the Lord. We cannot take hold of God in intimacy if we do not become uncovered before him. And then I start to wonder, just as a side note, you know, maybe our fear of becoming naked before God um, comes from the fact that we'd be very much confronted with the fact that we have nothing else to offer him except for ourselves in all of our weakness and nakedness. But let us consider that maybe that's actually all that God wants, is us in our weakness and our ungodliness, because there he can clothe us and dress us. So now I'm picturing us in this, this holy moment now, where we come out from hiding from the trees We are slowly taking off the fig leaves that we've used to cover ourselves, looking down and ready now to look up at the one who stands before us. And then the questions start, but will he speak a harsh word? Um, Will he look away? Will he even be there when we do that? And just as much as Genesis 3 reveals the foolishness of hiding ourselves from God, it's really beautiful because it also reveals the peaceable character of God and the hope that we have in Jesus. Because if we look closely, every response of God to Adam and Eve is a foreshadowing of his response to us in Jesus Christ. So that takes us to our third and final point. The sufficiency of Christ. So in Christ... God came looking for us first. So the scripture in Genesis speaks about how God, after Adam and Eve had hidden themselves, God came walking in the garden. So he comes as one who's still willing to be familiar with us, or in this case with Adam and Eve. And he comes walking, notice, he comes walking, not storming, not rushing, not riding upon the wings of the wind. He comes as one who is deliberately walking, as one slow to anger. He comes to humble us and convince us not to terrify us and make us feel the weight of our guilt. And he comes and closes the relational gap. So I'm going to bring this point home with Romans 5. I feel like it summarizes it so well. It reads, For while we were still weak, i.e. naked with every reason to be ashamed, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, naked and ashamed, Christ died for us. Therefore, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, not by our efforts, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were... If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God came for us whilst we were still naked and full of shame. And secondly, in Christ, we are given an eternal covering. This is quite a cool one. So when Adam and Eve came out of hiding, we read later in Genesis 3 verse 21 um, that says that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So God came out, well, once Adam and Eve came out, and you know, we have to, consider, we have to imagine that they needed to become uncovered in order for God to clothe them with something better because fig leaves are just destined to dry and rot and fall away and God comes and clothes them with something that will last a lifetime and that is animal skins and just the same way we can also go a little bit deeper and consider that Adam and Eve took it upon themselves to cover themselves which is also a symbol of performance I'm doing it myself it's out of my efforts and my striving that I'm keeping myself covered yet later God comes and clothes them himself And the animal that God had to kill in order to cover them with these skins became the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, who was killed so that we could be covered with his perfection and his righteousness. And Jesus' covering is a cover that lasts not just for a lifetime, but for eternity. And with that cover, we can safely come into the presence of God without fear of shame and without fear of punishment. And then finally, Christ was first to become uncovered. As we know very well, Jesus is the one who, as we read in Romans, came first for us, but who died hanging naked on a cross. I mean, a lot of the pictures of, of Jesus on the cross depict him with, his, with a loincloth hanging over him, but in reality, he was stark naked on the cross. And just to illustrate this a little further and maybe make it hit a little bit harder um also consider that with Stefan as my husband if I had to be in a public space naked and exposed Stefan would not even need to hesitate to run to me and I know he would uncover himself he would quickly undress in order for me to be covered because he would much rather be uncovered himself than see me uncovered and exposed and ashamed And just the same if he had had a choice to either have me uncovered and exposed in public versus him to be exposed and uncovered in public, he would much rather choose um, for himself to take on that shame. And just the same way, that's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. He was the one who became uncovered, exposed with the shame, um, in order that we might be covered again with his righteousness and his justification. So if Jesus could become naked and exposed in public, how much more can we become exposed and spiritually naked before him in the secret place? I think we can do that. <laughs> so just to close this, this picture, it's almost now 
as though Jesus is the one who comes into the garden looking for us. He takes off his covering of perfection and righteousness and gives it to us in exchange for our covering of sin and ungodliness. And then wearing that sin and ungodliness, he takes on the punishment and he is the one who's exposed before God in our place. So he's the one who takes on the punishment and the shame which caused us to fear and cover ourselves in the first place. And then when he raised again to life after death on the cross, it was the final stamp of finality to say it is finished. No other sacrifice is necessary. No other form of covering will be sufficient to purify us for one, cause us to be forgiven by God, and also then clothed in perfection and purity and righteousness. We have no reason to fear coming before God uncovered and exposed because then the only thing we have to gain in that moment is that intimate and deep friendship with him. Um, I just have to share this testimony um, a couple of months ago, and it's sort of where this word was born, but a couple of months ago I was lying on the couch on a Saturday I'm weeping because I was feeling sorry for myself that I felt like I was just not getting any closer to God. Um, you know, as much as I could set aside quiet times, I felt like I was leaving my room unchanged. I felt like the day that I lived in, in just in my working world wasn't demonstrating that I was walking in an any tighter intimacy with God than I had before. And then that's when I felt God say, but Daniela, when you're coming before me, you're not bearing everything. You're not bringing me everything. Um, you're still covering up something. So how on earth could you be intimate with me for as long as there's anything that remains hidden between us? Um, and not in a, not in a um, condemning, like, scary way, but it was a, a comforting invitation to say, there's nothing that can scare me. I think our nakedness is not the thing that, is, that repulses God. I think maybe our pride repulses God, but definitely not our nakedness. And so practically speaking, this uncovering essentially represents our repentance or our confession before God, when we take off the, take off the hiding, take off the loincloth. Um, but there's one thing that we have to get very clear. The end is not repentance. Repentance is not the goal. The goal is that intimate relationship with God. So I think a lot of us are really, we've got the repentance thing down, like we are very sorry before God. But maybe we forget to actually look up at the one who is so excited to join us in intimate relationship. The one who became, in a sense, uncovered on the cross in preparation for this intimacy. Now all that's required is our uncovering as well. So you're almost, yeah, thinking about it as well, being uncovered, is pointless if it's not entering into intimacy. The intimacy doesn't happen with the uncovering. The intimacy happens when we take hold. So let us also, in that moment of uncovering, repenting, and confession, um, not forget to gaze up at the one who's standing before us. He's And he's there, the one who came into the garden looking for us, the one who loves us to the point of losing his own life, the one who is glorious and beautiful and better than anything in this world that we could ever possess. Let's take that moment to gaze upon him. And so, um, yeah, Ben, I think you can, you can start coming up. Um, there's a couple of choices that now lie before us. On one hand, we can be like those who, gazing upon Jesus naked and exposed, mock him. Or we can be those who receive him and take him, knowing that his uncovering is for our covering, actually, at the end of the day. And then 
the further choice that we have as believers and unbelievers is, as unbelievers, are you content with remaining in hiding, pending the punishment for your sin, or are you ready to come out of hiding in order to be covered with Christ? And as believers, are we content with that surface-level relationship with God where we never enter into that intimacy, or are we ready and prepared to do what it takes in order to enter into that deep relationship with him, which is essentially our uncovering. And, and when I thought about this, I was like, flip, actually, there's not a choice for believers. There's no choice. If someone, and I thought about this, Stephen had just come into the room to bring me Paul's homemade ice cream. And then, um, have you guys had Paul's homemade ice cream? Is everyone cool? So you know what I'm talking about. Um, I was like, if someone had to freely present me dairy, vanilla dairy milk versus Nutella Oreo Paul's homemade ice cream, I mean, you would be foolish not to take the Paul's homemade ice cream. I mean, they just don't compare. And yet I think that there's so many of us who are accepting the dairy milk, yet God is bringing, is placing before us something so much more extravagant in our relationship with him. Um, and he's just asking us to accept it. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.